everybody. This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. And I have a really special guest on this week. I have Dan with Trusted Health. You guys heard that right. Trusted Health, I talk about them all the time. Now you are going to have a face to put with the the name of the the company that I talk about all the time. Hi, Dan. Hey, thanks for having me. Oh, no, thank you for coming on here. I'm so excited to get to do this. So Dan is a nurse and he works for Trusted Health, not as a travel nurse, right? Can you tell everyone what you kind of do there in the capacity that you serve there at Trusted Health? Yeah, so first and foremost, I'm a ER and trauma nurse at heart. I, I practice in level one trauma centers, Arizona and uh, California, um, and have, a, have had a bunch of weird jobs all throughout my career in nursing. But at Trusted Health, I'm the um, head of clinical innovation. And so I act in kind of three parts in the company. One is kind of a nurse leader for the company and help with everything that happens with nurses on contract from incident reporting to supporting them, their mental health, helping provide services and benefits to our nurses on contract, kind of the marketing side. So I also host a podcast called The Handoff and kind of have that nurse leader persona as we interact with facilities and clients and things. And then the last kind of bucket of work is really around client development. So being that clinical expert in the room as we go out and try and forge ahead and and disrupt the healthcare workforce, the nursing workforce. And, um, and it's been great. I've been there for about a year and a half and um, and just a wonderful place to be a nurse. Did you work for them as a travel nurse before you got into this role? No. So I, I barely knew anything about travel nursing, honestly, before really throughout my whole career. I've taken kind of a, the non-traditional path of doing everything but management, formal management. Like I didn't do the charge nurse, manager, director kind of pathway. I did everything around that. So I did trauma, obviously. And then uh, I was the director of nursing education for four hospitals at Ohio State. And then I started working for Kaiser Permanente, which is a large integrated health system with 38 hospitals and 60,000 nurses and, and was their director of nursing innovation and got to play around with technology and startups and Google and do all this kind of cool stuff in, in this innovation center. And then roll that out as a clinical expert to nurses throughout the the company. And in that role, helped advise the venture capital team at Kaiser, which is kind of interesting. They have a venture capital arm. And that's how I met Trusted. Fell in love with what they're doing and how disruptive they were to our profession and thought it was a great opportunity to go do something new and uh, join a startup and uh, use my nursing knowledge in a completely different way. Well, I know what you mean. I felt when I was introduced to Trusted uh, early on, when I started the podcast, I'd been doing it for about a year. I remember when I was reading about them thinking, if this is true, this is really amazing. I've never heard of anything like this. And I hope this is true because how wonderful for nurses who want to do travel nursing that they actually are, you know, could work for a company like this that that sort of puts nurses first and really looks out for, for their best interests. So I love Trusted Health. Over the year and a half to two years that Trusted has been sponsoring our podcast, I have come to know that everything that I read about and learned about from the beginning is actually true because I have friends who have gone on to be nurses, travel nurses with Trusted. And so they definitely live up to all the hype and everything. So I I love being able to kind of be the cheerleader for Trusted and, and talk about them because I know that it's all true. So I'm really happy to have you on the podcast uh, to have this opportunity to get to chat with you. Yeah, it's exciting. And, and uh, you know, I, the story I tell is like, I didn't leave an $85 billion company as a nurse leader to go join some random startup that was profiting, off, you know, like off the back of my own profession. I joined because of the mission. And we have some really cool stuff coming out in the next few months that's supporting nurses. We've, you know, we've done stuff through the quarantine pay and all kinds of different things that really is putting a different angle on a legacy industry that needed a lot of updating. And so it's exciting to be a part of that and, and really push the walls and be uncomfortable in, in making a new future for the nursing workforce. 
I love it. I love it. I love that we have another opportunity to talk to a nurse that's doing something a little different than just working at the bedside. I hear from people all the time saying, hey, is there uh, any other kind of nursing? You know, I always tell people like, if you got a question, just send it to me. And that is a question that I get quite a bit. Like, what other kind of nursing jobs are out there if I start working at the bedside and I just, um, it's just not for me? Or maybe I've just been doing it for a while. I'm ready to do something else. So this is another role. What you're doing there is another opportunity for people to hear. Yeah, bedside nursing is not for everyone. Or, you know, sometimes you do get tired of doing that and you want to move on to something different. So... That's really cool. Yeah, and we have about twenty percent of trusted is nurses. So we have nurse advocates, we have clinical success partners. Our you know Casey, our social media lead, is a nurse. We have a we have a software engineer that's also a nurse. Like so, there's all kinds yeah. of roles out there for it. And even on our platform, we we're putting nurses in production companies so they can resume filming, and the nurse is like the leader to keep them COVID compliant. So there's all sorts of roles out there that you would never imagine. Um, it, because you know most of our training as nurses is built to put you in a hospital and the world is changing and most i think the future of nursing is going to be out in the community out in these ambulatory roles out in these companies doing really interesting stuff that we haven't even thought of yet. We learn to do so many things uh, in nursing school and just as be, and being, if you work at the bedside at all, you learn so many interpersonal skills. You learn how to deal with people in general and we all have different talents. Uh, we don't have to all just be at the bedside doing the traditional. That's wonderful and I, I do that. I'm still a, a nurse at the bedside. I won't say where I work just because people make fun of me whenever I say it. So I don't want to say that I'm a CVICU nurse. I won't. <laughs> <laughs> I love CVIC nurse, by the way. My son, <laughs> my son had a ventricular septal defect that had to get repaired recently, and so I got very intimate with our CVICU peds nurses, and it was mm-hmm. wonderful. And I'm sure it's very different in the adult CVICU, but he was discharged in three days. <laughs> so, I mean, he's like from open chest, heart stopped on bypass to running up and down the driveway in three days is just mind blowing for me. So I love, I love my CVICU nurses. <laughs> yes, it's, it's very true. That patient population, uh, even in the adult world is very much like that. It's when I started working there, I was so surprised to see, I went from working in a progressive care unit where there are a lot of chronically ill patients who are sort of bedridden and trachs, vents, that sort of thing. And I learned a lot from working with that patient population, but it was very different when I went to CBICU and I saw where people would come in to have open heart surgery, to have, you know, structural heart repairs, just all sorts of different things have their chest cracked open and like you said, just a, a couple of days later, they're literally just, well, the very next day, you're, you're walking them around yeah. the unit. It's amazing. Yeah. We're getting you out of the bed. We're like, nope, you can't lay there. You got to get out of the bed. So I loved that about CVICU, just how you get to see people progress so quickly. And part of your job as a nurse is to get them to progress that quickly. It's to, to educate and get them moving. So I love that part of it. Yeah. So I guess we can get started on this bad, it is another bad doctor story, you guys. Sorry, I hate that I keep picking on doctors, but uh, you guys are an easy target, I have to say. There's just, I don't know what to say. There's so many stories out there. I think that the press loves to get a good doctor story that's kind of salacious and it's just, they are easy targets, unfortunately. But this one's different. It's not your typical, you know, I don't have to do a trigger warning this week. I feel like I've been doing those a lot lately with some of the stories that we've been doing. Um, And all of those are necessary. I feel like, you know, we like to shed a a light into the darkness is what I say, to talk about some of the bad things that can happen so we can be aware of it, protect people. You know, people can be vigilant. um, People can have the courage to speak up against things that they see and that sort of thing. And it's uh, sort of uh, the premise for what we're going to be talking about today. Um, 
not quite as dark as some of the stuff, but still really kind of scary what can happen. So we're going to be talking about Dr. And I, I don't know how to say this person's name. I, I, I gave up a long time ago trying to, trying to say people's names correctly. Uh, I apologize if, if I butcher it, but it's Dr. Rolando Arafiles. I, I don't know, maybe. Um, he attended medical school in the Philippines, and he did a residency at the State University of New York um, in Buffalo, and then did an internship at Harbor Hospital in Baltimore, which apparently is a non-accredited teaching hospital. Then started working in Winkler County Memorial Hospital in 2008, and that is when this whole event uh, took place and started, and it's just really crazy what happened. So when he started working there at this hospital, he really brought with him some questionable practices uh, and medicine, some of the things he was doing. Uh, very quickly, his patients started kind of questioning some things. People that worked with him, his colleagues, noticed um, the questionable things he was doing. And you know how that goes. You notice someone doing something and you kind of scratch your head like, oh, wow, I've never seen anyone do th- I've never seen someone do that before. Have you ever heard of a doctor doing this, you know? Like a rubber tip in someone's finger, maybe? <laughs> exactly. You're just like, what? you did what? It's just kind of, uh, sometimes things are going on around us and we, you get kind of that gut feeling like something's not right about this, but everyone may be thinking it to themselves, but nobody says it out loud. And then before you know it, someone has the nerve to speak up. And then a couple of people are like, no, yeah, I, I thought that was weird too. Yeah. It's hard sometimes too, though, because it's like, Practice changes so fast now. Like the new mm-hmm. advancements in things mm-hmm. and procedures is so fast. It's hard to even keep up with that. So I think part of the hesitation is like, is this like something I don't know and like seems okay? Or is this really, this is really weird. Like I need to bring this up in question or like, I don't know, you kind of create this self-doubt because everything does change so fast and the rollout of that information is kind of poor. That's a really good point, Dan, because I, I appreciate that. That is very common, I feel like, for people to think, well, is there something I don't know here? I feel like I've, I've been doing this for a while. I get it, though. I get how you can see something going on and you just think, wow, I really, I didn't think that was right, but I, I didn't want to say anything because, do you know? I yeah, mean, it's, it's like, just... I think, I, I don't think that's right, but I don't know that it's wrong. And that's the gray area you're like, now mm-hmm. what's my intervention? Do I bring it up? Do I have that relationship? Do I feel safe in mm-hmm. doing so? And like this story, if that's the culture, like <laughs> you're not going to bring anything up ever. You know, <laughs> exactly. It's so dangerous. So there were two nurses. So all this is going on. Patients are questioning his behavior and his practices. His colleagues are questioning it. Everyone's kind of talking about him behind his back. And then two nurses, Vicki Lynn Galley and Ann Mitchell, who were in sort of these administrative roles there at the hospital. Ann was the compliance officer at the time the complaint was made and Vicki Lynn was quality assurance officer. So they're both in these roles that are sort of like in oversight positions and they had both worked there for many years. So they were aware of what best practice was and they had the, the courage to do something about it. So this one act of collaborating together and writing a letter to the Texas Medical Board set in motion a series of events that really no one could have predicted. And it's quite scary to me. An anonymous letter too, which I think adds the little flavor to the story. Right. And I've been, so I've been a nurse for going on six years now. And I feel like from the very, very beginning, 
one of the first things I learned early on is that if you see something, you need to speak up and say something. And if you are afraid of repercussions, if you're afraid of you know people being upset with you or losing your job, there's always an anonymous way that you can report something. That way, things don't go unreported just because you're you're you know you're fearing backlash. So that's what these two women did. And ever and when I read the story, everything in me was just screaming like, "This is not right. This is not the way this is supposed to work." So in their complaint, they claimed that the doctor inappropriately prescribed and sold herbal medicines uh, that were not in line with hospital policy and that he performed unauthorized surgeries. They also said that, you alluded to this earlier, that he performed a non-standard procedure where he sewed a rubber tip onto a patient's crushed finger. Uh, I don't even know. <laughs> That's so bizarre. You can't make this stuff up. It's like MacGyver. Like I have a paper clip and a rubber tip and some sewing, you know, material. Like how do I fix a crush finger? Not not right. like a legitimate medical procedure. Exactly. It's like you're on a space shuttle in the middle of you know right. the in the middle of space. That this is the supplies we have to work with. We can fix this finger. So the complaint did happen to contain some clues that would help identify the author, even though they tried to keep it anonymous, and didn't conceal her age or her length of service. So you guys, whenever you're wanting to talk about like something that happened at the hospital or anything like that, you should try to like change genders, change change years, change numbers, change specifics so that no one can go back and say, hey, I know what you were talking about. You can even change diagnoses. You can change a lot of specifics to where no one, you can get your point across, but no one knows. And Anne, I'm sure, knows this as far as HIPAA goes, her being, you know, in compliance. But for some reason, it didn't occur to her to hide her own identity. And she probably just thought she would be safe just saying, hey, I'm going to not reveal my name. And that's sort of understood for anybody that reads this, that I don't want to be identified. And yet it's a very small hospital. And so because there aren't a whole lot of people there, especially probably that have worked as many years as she had, they're like, okay, it's a female. She's this this she's this age and she's worked there for this long. I guess we all know it's Anne, you know? And that's really sad. I mean, I feel like it is just because it shouldn't have been that way. And I feel like she had a lot of faith in the system that she didn't have to worry about it. Yeah, I mean, ultimately you should feel safe being able to bring up issues. Um, mm-hmm. And if you feel like you have to hide it, like there's an issue, that, that's an issue in itself. Like that issue should also be brought up because there's, like like you said, there's laws against this. There, it, it just, the whole reason airlines started doing communication changes was because the speak up culture wasn't there and then that moved into healthcare and we still don't have that speak up culture. So we got to do better at that. We really do. So this doctor was advised of the complaint that was standard procedure by the Texas Medical Board to let, of course, to let them know that there was a complaint filed against him. He asked his friend, the sheriff, Sheriff Roberts is his name, to help him find out who wrote the complaint against him. So the sheriff contacted the Texas Medical Board to get a copy of the complaint under the guise of pursuing an investigation of criminal action against the doctor because of the complaint. So... Like, I'm so, it's just so disgusting. The ethics here even. are so messed up. <laughs> so annoying, I can't even. So once he had reasonably identified a possible match to the whistleblower, he got a warrant, searched Ann's computer, and found a copy of the letter. So with that evidence, got a grand jury to indict the two nurses of misuse of official information, and they were fired. Both of the nurses were fired 
They were both arrested and they had to each post a bond of $5,000. I mean, this is so shocking. I, I, when I read this, I was just like, there has to be more to this. There's no way. Yeah. What else do they do? Um, well, but, yeah, yeah. I'm like, where, what grand, what evidence the grand jury had? They wrote a letter of a complaint with legitimate data. And like, so right. what's the grand jury doing here? That's my question. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like I've, you know, in some of these uh, crime shows, I, you always hear the um, prosecution say they can get a grand jury to indict a ham sandwich. And after reading this story, I see why. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently that's true. <laughs> so the argument against the women was that both of them had acted in bad faith and were acting out personal vendettas against the doctor. The problem with that is there was no proof that there was ever any sort of a vendetta that either of them had against him. So there, it, they didn't have a reason to do this other than the fact that they were concerned about the practices, about how he was acting and how he was treating his patients. Well, apparently, people all across the country came out in support of these two nurses. They raised over $45,000 to help with their legal defense. There was a big concern, as you can imagine, that if they were found guilty, that the law wouldn't protect people who brought about official complaints about professionals, medical or not, you know? And that's true. That's this is this is a big problem if if these nurses are convicted of this, yeah. Because it's gonna cause it's gonna cause everyone to to stop and think twice before and it's you gonna say something. it's gonna kill patients. Honestly, like that yeah. that's what this ends up doing. If you can't identify issues that are happening in real time without repercussions, people die mm-hmm. in in our profession. So it's just not mm-hmm. okay. Yeah, the precedent would have been horrible. Absolutely, the trial was supposed to take place in February of two thousand and ten. Uh, Vicki Lynn's case was dismissed by the prosecutor before it ever started. Anne's trial lasted for four days and the jury acquitted her in an hour. So the problem that I have with this is that sounds like a great outcome, right? That sounds like, well, that's exactly what we would have hoped would happen. I have a problem with this because it should have never, ever gotten that far. This should have never happened. That The sheriff should obviously not be looking into who filed this complaint for his friend. And at some point when this came to light, this should have not gone any further. But these women were dragged through this whole thing because it started in 2008. The trial was ta- you know, was to take place in February 2010. So look what they had to endure before it was finally, you know, before it finally came to a resolution. It sort of reminds me of the nurse in Nashville, Redon Devot, who made a medication error. And after all sorts of uh, just a botched investigation by lots of different indi- uh, every everybody concerned with that whole situation. It, it was just all messed up. But she's arrested, charged with criminal, charged criminally with neglect of an elder person, abuse of an elder person, and homicide. I can't I can't remember exactly, but she is facing criminal charges. She's facing prison time, possibly, definitely lose, facing losing her license because she made a medication error. To me, so she this her trial is coming up in in May. This has been going on for years. Her life has been turned upside down because of this. And so everyone's looking at this going, she if she is convicted, this is going to change everything. I feel like it's changed everything anyway, the fact that she could even be charged because I don't want my life to be turned upside down. I don't want to be sitting at home worried that I could have to go to prison because of a medical error, because I made a mistake with a medication. Well, and rarely is it the nurse is the person completely at fault. It's a Mm -hmm. system, medication errors are system errors. There's so many pieces of that transaction 
before mm-hmm. the medication even arrives to the facility, all the way through putting it in the IV that have breakdown in human error components. To blame one person who ends up being the last person in this whole chain of events is just, it's crazy. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense. And uh, that, I know that story like the back of my hand because I've been, I've been to all of her hearings and I've just, I just I've talked to her extensively. And so I know everything about that story and I, it's horrifying to me to think of. And I think about it a lot when I'm working and I override a medicine because the doctor's given me a verbal order. That's basically what happened is she, it, it, there was a whole series of things that happened and it was that whole Swiss cheese thing, you know, where all of the holes just happened to, to line up and a patient died because of it. And she made some mistakes and she admits that she made mistakes, but I guarantee you I made a mistake the last time I worked and every time I work, I probably do something, something because I'm a human being under impossible stress sometimes at work and, and there's staffing issues and it's just awful the, uh, what we're asked to do. And we do have people's lives at stake here. And so this, what this case, when I was reading this, it really made me think of, of her because I know what she's going through, the agony that she's suffering with her, you know, she and her husband, their lives have been on hold for years because of this. And it's not right. I, I'm just, I don't know. It scares me and it, it scares me. You know, I love that Vicki Lynn and Ann didn't, didn't have to, you know, they, they were acquitted. They filed a civil suit against the hospital, the doctor, the sheriff, the county attorney, and they won $750,000 to split between the two of them, which I don't feel like was really enough when you really think about what all it cost them. But that's what they got. They did win. But the police actually flipped that case on the men who abused their power. They went after them uh, and arrested the the doctor and the, the and then criminal trials would take place for all of the people that were involved in that as well. Because Dr. Arafiles uh, and his co-conspirators were arrested and charged. In December 2010, there was a warrant issued for the doctor. The warrant stated that Sergeant Randy Mensler had reason to believe the doctor had abused his position to find out who had filed the complaint and knew he would cause harm. And then the hospital administrator, Stan Wiley, said that Stan Wiley, hospital administrator, Robert Roberts, the county sheriff, and Scott Tidwell, the county attorney, were all investigated as well. They were all indicted on charges of retaliation and official oppression. Uh, the county attorney, Scott, and Sheriff Roberts were found guilty at their trials. Scott was sentenced to 120 days in jail and 10 years probation. Roberts was sent to, uh, sentenced to 100 days and had to give up his law enforcement license. And apparently at the trial, it was made public that Scott had been frequently hiring sex workers while his wife was in a coma. Just a little side yeah, note so there. That, all around good dude. Mm-hmm, just wonderful. Stan played, pled guilty and was sentenced to 30 days in jail and had to pay a $2,000 fine. The former doctor took a plea deal that included two months in jail, five years probation, a $5,000 fine, and he lost his license in Texas. And the Texas Medical Board alerted New York to the case where he also held a license. So they too revoked it for failing to practice medicine in an acceptable professional manner consistent with public health and welfare. So the press did find out that he had a pattern of this kind of behavior. There were numerous reports of him, quote, selling weird drugs and mistreating patients uh, dating back to 1998. And that also he moved a lot, which helped him to avoid detection and investigation. And we find that that is very common, unfortunately, in healthcare, where whether it's doctors, nurses, or whoever it is, move around 
after they get in trouble, they just switch hospitals and go place to place, maybe switch states and do whatever they need to do. Um, and then they're continue, they are able to continue to either be negligent or harmful on purpose or whatever. Apparently that's what he did and he was able to get away with it. A great case for a national licensure instead of all this crappy state-based, archaic, paper-driven mm-hmm. processes. If we had a single license that just licensed you as a nurse across the country, we can more easily track these type of things. But that has been a conversation for decades and very little movement has happened. I wonder why. I just always wonder these things like, what is the hesitance of of people? I know that in, in our country, there are, there are a group of of citizens that prefer to have smaller government. They want the states to have, you know, their, they want state each state to control with their own government. They believe in, you know, smaller local government and that sort of thing. But but that's what happens. We all freely move around the country and then just avoid detection. Yeah, I mean, I, for the most part, it's money. States make money off the licensure process, the renewal process. Mm. They, it's under the guise, I think, of safety. With at least the state that haven't joined Compact yet have said, well, what if a nurse moves around and they don't, they fall through the cracks and now we have a bad nurse, you know, within our system or our state. But that happens anyway. And we don't have visibility into the workforce either because every state has a silo of information. Some play nice with others, others don't. And it just creates this whole opacity to the nursing profession. And um, I think there's a huge opportunity. And we saw it in the pandemic. It was hard. Unless there was a state of emergency declared in the state, you couldn't get a license there because all the states shut down. And so California was still taking 13 weeks for you to get a nursing license in the middle of the pandemic. So how are you supposed to get nurses to help out when they're spiking at 30, 60,000 cases a day in, in Los Angeles. It's absolutely ridiculous. So at the end of the day, it has to come down to patient safety and the public safety, which is why boards of nursing are in existence. And if you're slowing down the movement of qualified professionals into your state, you're hurting your public good. And so I think we just need to flip the script there and, and figure out a better way to do it. You're right. This is an excellent case to sort of speak to that and the, and the importance of maybe trying to push that agenda forward at some point. And the whole COVID situation that's just a perfect opportunity to sort of use that to help push that agenda forward um, and maybe make some good change there. So currently the Texas Medical Board no longer investigates anonymous complaints. <laughs> I cannot. Why? I don't even understand that. So now they can't get in trouble for <laughs> for searching you out. <laughs> I'm really confused about that. I don't get it. I really don't get it. It makes no sense. Yeah, I, I don't, it's hard. I mean, there's two sides. I, I mean, there's obviously two sides to it. The I think at face value, it now looks like, oh, now we want to know who these people are, and then that'll go into some decision-making of the validity of the complaint, or we can now go after them and make sure, or maybe it'll reduce the amount of complaints like that, I think, face value. But at the same time, like if, you're, if you want to really investigate these things, anonymous complaints are hard to go get a ton of details on if you don't have any basic information to go talk to the people who are doing it. So I don't know. I think there's probably a balance there, but I, I think a, a blanket, we're not taking anonymous complaints, will hurt people stepping up because now they're going to feel retribution. Nurses and other healthcare providers are going to feel like now I'm in the limelight. Like, what do I do? So I don't know. It it, it seems like a weird choice. It definitely does. I uh, Every week when we talk about a different case and we bring to light, you know, something that happened, maybe it's a doctor performing a surgery that does something questionable and the nurse is standing there going, I can't believe that just happened. And we talk about the importance of speaking up and saying something. You know, you could save someone's life if you literally just say something. And then if if for some reason you don't, you get home and you're thinking about it, you know, pick up the phone and call, make an anonymous phone call. It's sitting here saying this over and over again to people, do something, say something, even if it's anonymous. What good does that do if it's not going to get investigated? Right. 
it's going to just, it's pointless. Mm-hmm. And we still see, I mean, honestly, I dealt with a case recently where a nurse saw something bad at a hospital, brought it up, was terminated very quickly afterwards. Their contract was terminated and then they brought it up to the state and they didn't want to remain anonymous. And they actually got changed to occur in that health system. So the Department of Public Health came in, removed the offending practitioner and and made some instant changes. And so that was like a good news of like, you can actually make a difference. And she brought her the scope of practice, all these different evidence-based documents to like show that this was the wrong practice. And it ended up changing things and and probably saving lives based on the scenario. So I, there is a there is a light and it does it can create change if if we do step up and do it. I think that we just have to keep talking about it. I, we started talking about last year, but some of us went to our state. I live in Tennessee and we went to our state capitol when we had the Nurses Day on the Hill and we were talking to our congressmen and trying to bring about change. And we like to talk a lot on this podcast about how we can make a difference, how we have a voice, how part of nursing being a profession is the fact that we are driving our profession and moving our profession forward and making changes ourselves. If we're not willing to stand up and say something and do sometimes do things that are really difficult, we're not going to bring about change. I mean, sometimes it is scary to say something. And sometimes I'm afraid, you know, I, I get on here and say all kinds of stuff. <laughs> and Everybody at my hospital knows I have this podcast, even though I tried to stay anonymous at first. It was it was impossible, and I finally just gave up. And I was like, whatever. I guess I'll just, whatever happens. I'm not going to say something. I, I'm not going to just say, I'm not going to be reckless, obviously, but I'm also not going to be afraid if I think something's wrong. So I'm just going to speak my mind, and hopefully everything will be okay. Uh, but I don't think we have, to, we can't be afraid. We work, if you're going to be a nurse and you're going to work in that role, that is not the time to be afraid to stand up and we are advocates for a reason. So. Well, and our professional obligation is not to the health system or to the the physician or to the employer. Our professional obligation is to the public. And so if you frame it like that, your role is is to stand up for the public in any way you can. And that's through advocacy, that's through reporting questionable practices, and that's through keeping yourself informed on the latest and greatest things for your practice it has nothing to do with where you work. So if maybe if you f- kind of flip your framing there, it helps kind of take away the pressure of it. Now we all, you know, we need to get paychecks and live and that kind of stuff, but that also protects us because we can bring that up if it were to go to some trial like these type of things. There's there are pieces that potentially protect us in framing it that way. Exactly. That's wonderful. So apparently, so Vicki Lynn appears to have stopped nursing in 2015 and is still licensed, although it's apparently she stopped working as well. She retired after all of this happened. Scott Tidwell ran a restaurant called the Stuffing Box Steakhouse for a short time before it permanently closed. And the person that writes up my show notes for me said it had a one-star rating on TripAdvisor and three stars on Google. (laughs) (laughs) I love that she put that. She puts all kinds of interesting stuff in here. I'm just like, I love that. (laughs) I love that she thought to do this. She looks up every single thing about these stories. I feel like a three-star steakhouse in Texas is probably the worst steakhouse in the state. (laughs) Yes. So apparently he resigned from the bar in 2014 because he didn't want to face further disciplinary action. Uh, Dr. Arafields died in 2014. I don't know what happened to him, but he passed away. And then Texas Nursing Practice Act and Public Employee Whistleblaw were altered to incorporate protection for prosecution, which I thought, okay, good. Something good did come out of this. That's great. That kind of counteracts that no anonymous complaints piece a little bit. Right, right. That's what I thought too. 
Well, I guess that's our, oh, that was such a doozy of a story. So heavy. I mean, it was so, not heavy, but it was just kind of, um, just so much, it's, it, kind of stirs up something in me, you know, just the injustice of it. It just drives me crazy. I can't stand it. People that try to use their power for their own benefit and their own gain and just are so reckless about it, you know? Yeah. And to take down people who are really trying to do the right thing. Yes. It's just, it's frustrating. And for it to Mm -hmm. be a nurse, I mean, like the most trusted profession Mm -hmm. and now you're deliberately going after to discredit them. um, Right. It's just, it's, yeah, it's super frustrating. Just for trying to do their job, man, it really... It is. And they were the compliance officer. Like literally their job is to do this. And they were then held accountable for doing their job. That That's also a piece that just is over the top for me. Right. And if, if there's nothing to the complaint, investigate it, put it to bed, and then it's, it's done. Why get so involved in wanting to know who these women are and teach them a lesson and send a message to everyone like you don't, you know, not to do this and... Obviously, clearly, the message is that this is not how you act. Thank goodness it did turn out this way. I hate that these women, I feel like they had to, you know, go through so much for for all of this, you know, to kind of um, hopefully teach people a lesson to not try to use your power in this sort of way, but let the system work the way it's supposed to. And if you didn't do anything wrong, it shouldn't be a problem. Right. Yep, totally agree. So I'm really excited about this Goodner story. So you, was it you that sent me the story or Lindsay? Yeah, uh, Lindsay and I, yeah. Yeah, we found it. This is amazing. So there is a Brooklyn nurse that has been named one of the 100 most influential people in the world. That's pretty crazy. By this Time is, Magazine. Um, so not like Time Tom, like, Magazine. Not the, not the, the what, the, <laughs> the, the ones on the, uh, the supermarket shelves, right? The Explorer right. or whatever, like literally right. the one that names the people of the year. Like, yes. <laughs> this is it. This is awesome. This one nurse, her name is Amy O'Sullivan. She works at Wyckoff Hospital and she actually treated the very first COVID-19 patient in New York City. And Unfortunately, that patient was the first person who died back last year in March of 2020. But that nurse had been a nurse for 18 years. She contracted the virus herself, ended up in the hospital on a ventilator. And then when she recovered, just a couple of weeks later, ended up right back to work. I thought that was just amazing. What an amazing person. Did you watch the video of her talking? I'm blown away by this woman. Yeah, I almost, I like started tearing up when I was watching it. Honestly, like it is everything that nursing is to me. Like, it's just so, so amazing. And the quote I loved in that video was, the physician came in and said, they're going to intubate me and put me on a ventilator. And all I could think about is, could I work again? And it's (laughs) amazing. That's what you're worried about working again. Uh, yeah. And she said, you know, and I loved it when she said that she said, I should be jaded. I should be jaded. But she said, I'm not. I just want to help people. And I was like, wow, I, I could learn so much from this woman. She's She's been a nurse for 18 years. Most nurses, not in a pandemic that's been a nurse for 18 years, might struggle with being jaded. Yeah. You know, but after being beat up by the system for, for almost two decades. But she just wants to do her job. She wants to just be out there doing her job, taking care of people. I just love that. Yeah. Such a great story. And I think it just, it's like the personification of the whole profession. I mean, one of the things that we did at Trusted was when the pandemic hit off in New York, we were able to get almost 200 nurses to New York in like three days. We literally had them on, we we got the jobs in on Friday. We had them on planes on Sunday. They were in New York Mm -hmm. Sunday night 
ready to work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, like right when that whole call for nurses came out. And that was the stories we heard. Like, why are you doing this? I have to go help. I have to go into the hot zone. We had, we did, we did messages with these nurses of like, from my, I, you know, I have friends that are in the military, military nurses. I was like, how do you send people into battle? And like took those ideas and tried to like pep talk our nurses as they go into what to watch out for. How do you protect yourself? But it's this, it's these stories of like, I just have to do this. Nothing else matters. I'm, this is my professional calling. I'm going to do it. And it's just so amazing. And she just personifies the whole thing. I love it. I just love it. And uh, she seems like the kind of person that would almost just want to shrug that off and just be like, what's the big deal? I'm just doing my job. <laughs> very New Yorker too. She's very New Yorker. <laughs> Can I just go back to work now? Right, you know, yeah. Just... Get over this stuff. <laughs> oh, I love it. Well, what you just said about how you were thinking about how to send these nurses off to do this and how you were consulting people who had gone to war, nurses who had been wartime nurses, and military, and how you were kind of doing that to try to figure out the best way to help these nurses prepare for this. I don't feel like that is something that when I think of travel nurse companies, it doesn't strike me that most companies are necessarily advocating and looking out for their nurses that way. So that's another thing that I really appreciate, trusted. I feel like they do look out for their nurses. And it's what I hear when I hear, when I talk to my friends who work for Trusted, that's something that they say over and over again, how they are contacted by their nurse advocates they check on them all the time. They send them presents. Q was telling me he got a sweater. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. The Patagonia trusted uh, jacket. It's a coveted item. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, you're right. Yeah. I mean, and it was interesting because we were adapting to the pandemic just like everyone else. And and like I said, we have about 20% of our nurses, 20% of our company are nurses too. And we got in a room and we we had to sit down and we were in tears. Honestly, it, it hit us. Like, we have the ability to go out and practice at the bedside, and we can also help get nurses to the right spot. And that there was a, a burden to that. And you did feel like you were sending people into war and a little bit guilty that you weren't there with them. But what we tried to do is build up support systems on the back end. Mental health support, we set up an, a, a crisis line with Ohio State nurse practitioners from the nursing school to man a crisis line so that any one of our nurses could call the crisis line during the height of New York and Michigan being kind of the top spots. They could call it anytime they wanted. We did quarantine pay for a nurse. So if they got, if they got COVID, two weeks pay, no questions asked. And so we were able to do other things at a system level to support nurses at the front line. And we did that very intentionally because we are, we are the profession and this is an opportunity to do something different. And like you said, we were one of the first to do those things from a travel perspective. And it was just the right thing to do. And internally, we had no hesitation to do it. And it felt really good to be able to support the profession that way. Well, thank you for doing that. I appreciate you being there and helping us to be a voice for people and to be able to unite the healthcare profession is one of the things that, that we want to do in doing this podcast is kind of bring everyone together, not just nurses, doctors, respiratory therapists, everyone, everyone in the healthcare field to try to kind of bring it, we're all on the same team and um, bring us all together and shine a light on the dark things that happen and hopefully to be a megaphone for the things, the good things that happen and talk about all of the nice uplifting things as well. So we appreciate you so much. Yeah, it's a the team is important. One of my side gigs is actually helping build the new Kaiser Permanente School of Medicine as as a nurse educator, and I was responsible for the interprofessional education piece. And there's just so much opportunity to be innovative there. So if you have a passion for teamwork, like let's get out there and build better teams because that's ultimately how we we do better and we avoid some of these conversations we've had today too. Exactly. Absolutely. You guys know that uh, as you hear on the promos that we put on here, but 
obviously, if you want to know anything else about Trusted Health, you can go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse. You can go to our website. They have, there's a link on there as well. And you can fill out a profile and you can actually get on there and start seeing right away. You can see jobs all across the country. It's actually really cool. It's one of the first things I did was I went on there and I was like, Are you, seriously, all you got to do is go and just like fill out a couple of little info, pieces of information and you can literally see the jobs, what they pay, the stipends and all of that. Yeah, it's true. So kind of cool. Yeah, it's super cool. And we have a lot of vaccination jobs now coming through. So if you want to help end the pandemic, uh, there's a, uh, across the country, there's a lot of roles for nurses, LVNs, LPNs to put shots in arms or supervise vaccination centers. So just uh, another flavor of things to check out. Well, you guys know you can find us at goodnursebadnurse.com. You can email me at tina at goodnursebadnurse.com. We're on Instagram at goodnursebadnurse or GMBN podcast on Facebook and Twitter. And we love to hear from you. Send us your stories and your feedback. Love to hear from you guys. And I also want to remind you guys, even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse. Bye.